0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords.
1: And my name is John Keeley. This is the 378th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Anna Dugan, adjunct faculty member of the Department of Anthropology at MacArthur University. In Ottawa, Canada, she is going to talk to us about the American Civil War, a molecular study of smallpox. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toplin. The show's theme song is titled Kayla's Theme, which is written and performed by Mark Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker.
0: This is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Danarin. And today we're going to be talking about the American Civil War. A molecular study of smallpox with Anna Dugan, adjunct faculty in the Department of Anthropology at McMaster University. Welcome to the show, Anna.
2: Thank you. Um, my surname is Dugan, by the way.
1: Oh, good. I've apologized. <laughs> also, McMaster University
2: way. is in Hamilton, not Ottawa, but it's okay.
0: Canada <laughs> oh, they, is far away sorry, from where apologize. you are. <laughs> in in oh. Hamilton.
2: Oh. Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah.
1: I, I'm sorry. I, I met Santera. I
0: apologize. All right. <laughs> okay. So, having made all of those mistakes early, see, we get them out of yeah. the way early, where we don't yes, have to indeed. deal with them anymore. Um, so, can you uh, can you give us a brief history of smallpox in the New World before the Civil War?
2: Uh, in the Americas? Yeah. Uh, sure. Um, the truth is, we don't know a whole lot about it. Um smallpox was definitely present in the Americas um even before the civil war American military leaders were often trying to protect their troops against uh smallpox and of course um in in both North America and South America um particularly notable in in Mexico um there's the suggestion that European um Explorers and uh, colonizers willfully and deliberately infected the local indigenous populations with smallpox, which is a terrible piece of history.
1: Okay. Um, Having said that, uh, and, and to be honest, it's hard to believe that something which was so internationally devastating is no longer, thank God, and science, obviously, part of our planet. Um, in doing your research here, of course, you're looking at the molecular study of small parks during this time period. What gave you the idea or inspiration to look at the Civil War this way? I mean, I've studied a lot of things about the Civil War. Never once thought of going down the molecular road. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I have to say part of that, well, multiple pieces of that really were were truly chance. Um So I first started studying smallpox um, a few years ago when, with a different molecular study, um, we unexpectedly recovered evidence of variola virus, which is the virus that causes smallpox, in mummified remains of a child from 17th century Lithuania. And we did a, a study that looked at comparing that strain of variola virus with other available genomic sequences for variola virus, most of which were from the 20th century, all of which were from the 20th century. And um, we we noticed that there was a, a potentially interesting pattern about when some diversification occurred um, within sort of this group of viruses that is variola, within those strains of variola. And so we started to get interested in looking at what other viruses were used for vaccination purposes against burial and against smallpox. And around about the same time that, um, from the molecular perspective, uh, we were interested in, in looking at those strains. Some of our longtime collaborators at the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia discovered in their collection um, some vaccination kits that had been put in the wrong drawer and no one knew that they were there and they originated from a time point that we think was about the American Civil War. So I didn't go about um, intending to study vaccination specifically in the time of the American Civil War. That was the, the material that became available to me.
0: Well, wow okay um so anna kind of help me understand how does one go about vaccinating for something that i'm not quite sure what it is because we haven't seen viruses we don't have you know all of that that modern t- post early 20th century information so what kinds of things can i use to vaccinate and, and how do i know that they work or work effectively
2: That's a really great question. And the answer to that question has changed over time. So um, within a a sort of European Western uh, context, a process known as variolation, which was actually taking sort of um, scabs from individuals who were recovering from smallpox were crushed up and used as vaccine source material. Well, not vaccine, sorry, I spoke there. Um, variolation or inoculation material to protect against smallpox in individuals who had not yet caught it. However, that process was imported from the East, um, and there's suggestions that that process had been used in the Islamic world and in the um, East Asian cultures for centuries uh, before that. So that was really this case of um, using the same material to protect against the future, right? So the the idea being that if you expose to a tiny bit of um, the material that caused smallpox, maybe you could bring about a, a mild form of disease and protect against a future epidemic outbreak. Around the okay. end of the 18th century, this practice of vaccination as we know it now um really becomes more widespread and it's attributed to uh, an English physician, Edward Jenner, who was practicing in Berkeley. And what he noticed was something that many other individuals within um, the UK had noticed before that people who milked cows often got a sort of pustular rash on their hands if the cows that they were milking had a pustular rash on their udders. Um, And so this was known as cowpox. And then what was also noticed was that these individuals who had had this cowpox rash on their hands, which was really mostly a nuisance infection more than anything else, um, seemed to be immune when smallpox outbreaks occurred. So Jenner took some material from a milkmaid, supposedly, who had cowpox and used that as material to vaccinate a child who hadn't been exposed to smallpox before, the child didn't feel great for a couple of days, but really, again, like a, a childhood fever sort of thing, not, not smallpox. And then deliberately exposed the child to smallpox afterwards um, and found that he was immune. And so that's when this practice of vaccination or using something that's not the actual causative agent itself, but something reasonably closely related uh, was sort of born for this protective purpose.
1: Okay. Um, so let's bring it into kind of the Civil War. Um, what is the average, if I may ask, um, life expectancy pre uh, in antebellum and in the c- Civil War? Because uh, from what I read on this, part of the reason why uh, you did this practice that you discussed is you pretty much try to give it to the kids to form that immunity when the child expectancy, life expectancy wasn't that great in the first place. Um, did this play into it or was this just uh, the American civil war comes along? We have this materials were they always apprehensive of it.
2: Um, To be totally honest, I don't know the full answer to that question. Uh, I'm not, a specialist of the American Civil War. Our collaborator, Dr. Robert Hicks, is, and he would probably know more about um, life expectancies. I think um, the purpose of using children for these vaccination purposes was often um, that they were known to have not been exposed before, uh, and in addition sure. to that, were unlikely to have any other conditions that could be passed on to somebody else if that material was being collected from them to use for vaccination purposes. So, for example, the the big disease that is often in that time associated with sort of inappropriate or spurious vaccinations is syphilis, right? So the the risk that if you were trying to collect material from somebody to protect against vaccination and that individual that you were collecting the sample from happened to have syphilis, you were passing it on to the other people that you were vaccinating, which is not good. Right.
1: No, not at all. Not Not at all. Uh, Well, thank you very much. That is definitely interesting. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on St. Ambrose University, KALA, 106.1 FM. In times of joy,
0: in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television. Reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords.
1: And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Anna Dogan, adjunct faculty at the Department of Anthropology at MacArthur University, and we're here to talk about the American Civil War, a molecular study of smallpox. Uh, Anna, if I butchered your name again, I apologize. I'm in a place where <laughs> I've been down. Um, our history book it down. We can turn it into show. a running joke. <laughs> well, and, you know, and I'm sorry about that, because it looks, it's a great name, but Apparently, uh, I must have been at the presidential debate the other night. Uh, the history books for today's show are Bretman Hart and Terry Toplin. Brett, you get the first question and try to pronounce her name correctly. <laughs> See, this is why I'll just stick with her
0: first name. Ann, right. can you talk to us a little bit about um, how voluntary was this inoculation process? Today, we deal so much with uh, people who are anti-vaccine. Uh, especially with like soldiers, would they have had an option or was this something they were told this is happening? Get ready.
2: That's a great question. And as with almost everything to do with um, public health, I think there's several layers to it. Um, My understanding is that Many of the the soldiers and and people of that nature were, in fact, very interested in being vaccinated. That smallpox was something that was very much feared, especially because if you can imagine living in sort of a a troops and and barracks uh, situation, it's probably not the most hygienic. And in situations of high population density and low hygiene, we do know that infectious disease spreads faster. I think that this idea of um, consent and whether or not it was willing is much murkier when we look at things like who the individuals were used that were used to propagate the vaccine Um, so this idea that well not an idea we know that at various points children were used as um sort of the the host to propagate the vaccine, as we discussed, because they hadn't been exposed before, but whether or not that was something that the children consented to, um, we we don't know. I certainly don't know.
0: Okay, First. Terry.
2: Uh, yes, Anna,
3: I had read that um, during the Civil War that two out of three men who died in the Civil War actually died by disease. In fact, they called the Civil War period a medical middle ages for that time. My question has to do, um, can you tell me what was the death rate uh, for Union soldiers and was it different for Confederate soldiers, uh, the death rates uh, from smallpox?
2: I, I truthfully don't know. I'm sorry. Oh,
1: okay. No problem. All right.
3: Um... Well, I I read that there was like about 12,000-plus cases of smallpox, um, in the Union Army with a 23% death rate. I was really surprised at that. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, the children that they were using? Um, you said you weren't sure if they were if it was voluntary or involuntary, and why suddenly was there a rise of smallpox um, just before the Civil War?
2: So smallpox tends to occur in large outbreaks. Um, as for your earlier um factoid there, about 23% fatality, that to me is not surprising. We do know that the fatality rate for smallpox infection was up to about 30%. Um, So when smallpox infections broke out, it was a very, very scary time and many, many people died. Um, Children have been recorded in the record as being used as these sources for vaccination purposes, with regards to the molecular study that I completed, which was on these five kits that were associated with the American Civil War, we have no record about who the donors of those vaccines were. So we don't know if they were children or not. Um, Interestingly enough, by looking at the genetic material that we were able to recover from those kits, we were able to determine that um, three of the donors were female Um, And based on their mitochondrial genome that we were able to reconstruct, we believe that they were likely of West European ancestry.
0: Okay. So my question kind of goes back to that molecular. um, Most viruses have multiple strains, um, and smallpox seems to be a fairly slow mutating virus, but I'm assuming that we're still talking about multiple strains in the new world did you see that in your kits did you find different varieties or um you know had had that kind of thing already happened in the past and and that's kind of where we're at you know going forward and and into the modern world can you talk a little bit about that
2: sure so smallpox does have um several strains the The virus that causes smallpox, as I said earlier, is variola virus. And there's these two major clades. So one is variola major. So that's the the one that causes epidemic smallpox with the 30% um, case fatality rates. There's also variola minor, which, as the name might suggest, has a, a lower case fatality rate and seems to really have a much milder disease presentation in general. Now, the viruses that we recovered from these kits, however, were not variola virus. Uh, because what we were looking at was an era when vaccination is in practice, not variolation. So the viruses that we recover from these kits are, in fact, vaccinia virus, which is not a terribly closely related virus, in fact. Um, However, it's clearly closely enough related to be able to prompt a strong enough immune system that works as a protective factor against future exposure to variola virus, thereby preventing smallpox the strains that we recovered from these kits, so five kits, we recovered five different strains of vaccinia, but they're all very similar to each other. And in fact, they're also pretty similar to another um, older vaccine strain that comes a little bit later, just after the turn of the 20th century, that was curiously enough also manufactured in Philadelphia. So our kits came from the Mütter Museum, which is in Philadelphia. We believe that they were being used by physicians that were practicing in the area which seems to suggest to me that the source of vaccine material that was being used for this vaccination purposes in Philadelphia was probably reasonably constant over a couple of decades.
1: Okay. Um, a question then we're of course talking. The issue you're saying that this study was pretty much being carried out in Philadelphia. Is it any knowledge that the Confederacy had similar setups for the um, dealing with this and other viruses i know you're focusing very much on this uh case study in that area but have you come across or other major cities having something similar like this south of uh, the dixon line
2: um so we don't know that these kits were used in the civil war we know for um four of them i believe the physicians that they Uh, were associated with and the time point that they studied with, but I don't necessarily know that they were being used in a civil war camp. We we know that they were being used in the 1860s, maybe early 1870s. Um, I think this practice would have been widespread, um, very much so. And in fact, you know, the the basic procedures that were being used and the ideas would have been widespread across not just the U.S., but uh, the Americas, Europe, Everywhere, this was a practice that worked, and, and people were using it.
0: Brett, okay. well, so we've talked a lot about these kits. Can you kind of describe what they look like and what the process would be of getting uh, inoculated with these kits? I'm I'm assuming it's not like when I go uh, to the local pharmacy and get my flu shot. I think it, I'm guessing it's probably a little different.
2: It was. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So there there are some variations to the different kits, but they do follow a, a similar sort of um, format. So typically, they're present as um, sort of like a little leather case, um, maybe about the size of two credit cards. Um, and then inside of those cases, what we typically find is a, a lancet. So something that looks kind of like a, a very simple s- a knife um, that, that would have been used to sort of cut um, the arm or wherever the vaccine material would have been applied. There's also often um, two little glass slides, which are um, um, maybe an inch and a half by an inch and a half. And we think that between those two glass slides, uh, lymph or the fluid from the pustules and the blisters that developed from at the vaccination site would have been collected and stored and it could have been used for more vaccination later and then there's also often a small box in which we think that if there was uh, like scabs that were collected from those pustules as they kind of aged and, and were healing that would have been stored and so when vaccination time came physicians would take this material whether it be the crust or the lymph And either sort of crush up the crust itself um, and insert it sort of into a cut on the skin and the same thing with the lymph if the lymph had been dried between two glass slides probably reconstituted with a little bit of water and again sort of rubbed over an open cut just to insert it under the skin there's variations on that practice Um, in some areas there was a, a preference to sort of crumble the crust and sort of blow it up the nostrils, but typically what we're seeing by the the age of these kits and, and in this geographic area, it's more so the, the lancet with a, a little scratch to the skin and then applied uh, to the surface.
0: Okay, Terry.
2: Yes, Anna, as you were
3: investigating these kits and and also your other research into this time period, was there anything that you found very surprising that you didn't expect to discover or something uh,
2: very interesting that
3: you'd like to share with us.
2: Mm. So I think one of the things that um, surprised me and that I I didn't necessarily appreciate before I started doing this research is that, um, as was mentioned earlier in the program, you know, this vaccination process happened before we really understood what viruses were. Um, and physicians had this practice that they knew worked but they didn't understand why it worked. Uh, and in fact, they didn't know what they were really working to protect against and what it was that they were using that worked. So there was very little standardization in terms of the material that was used. So if we get uh, a kit that we think is associated with smallpox vaccination We really don't have any idea what sort of virus might have been present at that time. There's a variety that are possible that all fall within this same sort of family of viruses as variola. And because of that, they all work as effective vaccination strains. And what was interesting and a little bit surprising to me was when we recovered these five strains from this kit, not only were they all very similar to each other, but they were all very clearly vaccinia virus. the only reason that that was a little bit surprising is that vaccinia virus is the viral strain that is really common for vaccination once you get to the 20th century. So when we get to the 20th century this is when um, sort of vaccine production becomes an industrial process Um, and vaccine production rather than happening sort of this arm-to-arm transfer between humans it starts um, being propagated inside livestock and then purified and then distributed for human use. So the presence of vaccinia prior to the 20th century was surprising to me, and that it was being used for this human arm-to-arm generian vaccination style.
0: It would be uh, it would be very interesting, wouldn't it, to to get your hands on uh, some more kits to see whether or not that was a localized. Um, situation or whether they really had figured something out and knew that it worked and, and so forth. Cause I would imagine these sorts of kits at that time period are pretty hard to come by.
2: So I, again, the historian, one of the historians who works on this project, Dr. Robert Hicks, um, has done a fair amount of research to that. And he's scoured all sorts of medical catalogs. And what he's found is that in that era, in the sort of late, 1800s, there are no medical companies that are selling um, sort of vaccination kits ready to go, even though there's all these similarities between the kits that we observe. Mm -hmm. But you can buy all of the pieces separately, and so the the thought is that they were probably assembled in a sort of bespoke manner.
1: Okay. Um, Interesting. When looking at these packets, was there any form of documentation of some experts saying that when the temperature got warm, it would go away, only 15 people would get it, and then Lysol solved all these problems?
2: (laughs) Oh, no. No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) John, John, stop it.
1: (laughs) Well, my lead-up question is sincerely, how do you sit there and look at the process that we had back then, and how does it kind of apply today to our situation? I mean, how do you view it?
2: You know, when I first started working with these kits and on the vaccination project uh, back in the, I think, spring of 2017, the the touch point that I thought that made the pro- uh, the project relevant to the present was measles and decreasing measles vaccination rates and increasing measles outbreaks. Um, and, of course, all of that has changed in the last couple of months. Um, However, I think what I really take away from smallpox vaccination, even though the process is very different, and in fact, the disease is very different from from where we are today, um, is that it worked and that with global effort, uh, we were able to eradicate this awful disease. Um, And I I think and hope we can do it again.
0: Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
1: You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. ROI airs Friday nights at 9:30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan quad city area. You can stream this show every Friday night at tunein.com. Search for KALA HD2.
0: This concludes our 378th show of ROI: Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark zapp My name is Jay Swords.
1: And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Anna Dogan, adjunct faculty in the Department of Anthropology at McCaster's University, who talked with us about the American Civil War, a molecular study of smallpox. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Terry Toplin. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great substitute proverb, Oso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. Remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.